Well, good morning. I started right off by putting the iPad up here and tapping the wrong button. I'm notorious for technical difficulties as soon as I get in front of people, but it's there, it's ready to go. I am grateful to be here and welcome all of you to Oklahoma who are from out of town. I will tell you that this is, um, this is uh, colder than we normally uh, have. I grew up in the Mountain West, even though my story today will center me in the Midwest. Uh, most of my childhood was there and this feels like a morning in Casper, Wyoming to me. So welcome to Casper, Wyoming. Um, and on the lines of welcome, I, I was born in a house of welcome. On the day that my parents brought me home from the hospital in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, I was welcomed by my two older brothers, Terry and Doug, and nine additional children who lived in our house, six teenage girls and three elementary age boys who called 1011 Miss Bell Street their home too because my parents fostered children. And if you've already done the math, your calculation of 14 human beings under one ranch-style roof is correct. We added my little sister, Tammy, to the mix four years later. And the best explanation I can offer for what seems an extraordinary way to grow up is welcome. In the late 1960s, my mom ran a residential daycare, welcoming little ones into our home each day while their parents worked. She lost her mother at the age of four after a ruptured appendix led to an infection. And that loss set her on a lifelong path of caring for children when their parents could not. Three children left in her care at the daycare became the first foster children because one of them became sick and their parents could not be reached to get medical attention. So Child Protective Services, short on foster homes, said, Bob and Dee Moore, would you keep these three children? They said yes. And for the next 20 years, a caseworker would call and ask the same question. Can you take these children into your home? Can you take this child into your home? And always the answer was yes. Maybe because my mom knew this unique childhood pain of losing home and parent. But my gregarious dad also never missed an opportunity to befriend a stranger. So welcoming vulnerable children who needed the love and care of a parent wasn't such a strange thing for him either. She ran the, ran the house like a CEO boss, teaching us all to cook and clean and sew. Don't ask me to do your hymn or, so, well, I can sew on a button. I can sew on a button. I, I tried to forget the sewing part. But she, she taught us all these things and made sure that everyone had the life skills that they needed. And my dad loved and laughed and started the conversations about the purpose of life and faith and asked 16 year olds, hey, you want us to help you buy a car? So this all sounds beautiful, right? It was beautiful, it was. But it was also so messy and so challenging. I don't really remember experiencing quiet in my childhood. All those lives and stories and traumas colliding under one roof 
meant strong emotions, an enormous amount of laundry, and noisy dinners. I'm pretty sure I did uh, a load of towels every day. I think that was my chore. So every day of my life, towels. And I think it's why the towels at my house can sit in the dryer for two or three days before I decide if I want to fold them. But the noisy dinners, those have some great memories. Like the dreaded day of the month when my mom would prepare liver for dinner. Let me be clear. My mom is a fabulous cook. Always has been, still is. It was not her lack of culinary skills that was the problem. It was that we all absolutely hated liver. And the moans and the protests would begin as soon as the liver fumes would escape the kitchen. Those dinners were awful. Just awful. And hilarious. Because the bottle of ketchup would come out and we would smother those liver steaks with ketchup and that entire bottle would be used up before we finished the meal because eating was serious business at our house and in the 1970s, you cleaned up your plate. One particular Brady Bunch-like dinner night, there was a liver uprising. 14 people barreled into the dining room, chairs being pulled out, scraping across the floor, and people bumping each other's arms as we all sat down, <clears throat> my dad giving thanks for this gourmet meal. And then we all sat down, attempting to eat what we were told starving children would happily consume. After a few minutes, one of the kids said, hey, something hit my leg. And we kept eating. And then it happened again, and somebody else said, hey, something hit my leg. And obviously, it doesn't take too much time to realize somebody was taking a river and putting a napkin and putting it under the table and tossing it to the dog, but they had a few rogue pieces that landed on legs. It wasn't long until my mom gave up the liver crusade, and we breathed a collective sigh of relief to return to the steak, roast, and ground beef portions of the cow. And I can't think of another meal in my family that has generated as much laughter and exaggerated retellings. It was this sliver of liver that brought levity and belonging to children who needed more memories around a dinner table. And I just want to say, if my mean-spirited attack on liver has offended you because you love liver and onions, May 10th, Liver and Onions Day. It's coming, so we can celebrate then. It was a lot of work becoming a family under those circumstances. But there are more than 70 children who might not have had a place to sleep or a family to belong to if my parents had not welcomed them in. So that's the family. I don't know if you can see it. It's a little smaller than I expected, but that was the group in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. I can't even begin to unpack how those years shaped the trajectory of my life. So many indelible marks of gracious welcome that have informed my vocation, affected my friendships, challenged my assumptions of family and poverty, deepened my faith, convicted me of prejudice when I didn't think I had any, and even invited me into this personal hospitality of accepting myself. 
Historian and theologian Amy Oden writes in her book, And You Welcomed Me, a source book on early, the hospitality of early Christianity. Hospitality is not so much a singular act of welcome as it is a way, an orientation that attends to otherness, listening and learning, valuing and honoring. The hospitable one looks for God's redemptive purpose and presence in the other, confident, important word there, confident it is there, if only has eyes to see and ears to hear. She makes two really good points, for me at least. First, genuine welcome has this way of orienting our whole lives towards otherness, if we allow it. My parents certainly extended welcome when they said yes to those first three foster children. But their lives became oriented around welcome when they continued to say yes for over 20 years. Second, when we welcome, we are confident that God's good and redemptive presence is already at work in the person whom we don't yet know, we don't yet understand, and we don't have a shared history we demonstrate that we believe that, that that goodness of God is flowing through them in how we pay attention to them, how we listen to them, how we learn from them. That's been such a good one for me, to learn from the one who is so different than me that I don't think they have anything to teach me and value their thoughts and perspectives. One of the first to-dos when a foster child came to our house was my parents would set up a bedroom, get them clothes and shoes because... Unbelievably, even if they came from another foster home, nobody ever came with anything but a little trash bag with a few things. And that was it. And so they needed to know that they mattered enough to have space and to have things. I love that. I think that was how my parents modeled that first thing of seeing them and welcoming them, loving them, accepting them before they ever knew them. So the last decade for me has been this deep dive into a lived hospitality that invites people beyond the doorstep of my geographical and emotional home. I have to say I'm always struck by a Western practice which I participate in, that we keep people on the front porch and we don't always invite them in. So we do that physically, right, when the doorbell rings and we also do it emotionally. I'm gonna just hold you right there for quite a while until it feels safe. But in other parts of the world, when someone knocks at the door, the guest on the threshold is invited in, offered food and drink, and all the activity stops to focus on his or her presence. And sometimes the best and even the last food resources are used up in honor of this guest. I have realized that is what my parents modeled for me, a welcome that requires more than I sometimes think I can give. When I do invite someone into my home or my schedule or my heart, even when my time and my emotional bandwidth seems limited, it multiplies in their life and mine. I I think that's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. There's too many people 
we can't feed them all. Send them away to go get help someplace else and find it themselves. And Jesus says, "Mm, I think we can do it here. Let's make that happen. And then it multiplies. There's a growing movement of dinner churches across the U.S. where the shared meal becomes the central focus from where the music and the conversation and the message all flow. And this shared meal can be a sacred space where we welcome each person to be heard and feel refreshed and find that they too have a place to belong at the table of faith, no matter who they are or where they come from. So with the help of some friends, we started a dinner church where we invite people from an intersection of economics, ethnicities, and experiences to sit across the table from one another and listen to each other's stories and practice this deeper hospitality. And practice is really a great word here because it definitely is taking practice. So this all sounds beautiful too. Every person I talk to is like, that is such a beautiful idea. And it is. But it's messy and it's challenging also. Just like growing up at my house was. You can't enter a dinner church and slip into the back row of a dark sanctuary unnoticed. No, 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 we see you come in. We know you're there. And you're welcomed into this dining space or maybe an outdoor picnic where the opportunity to belong together is there, but also all of our stories and all of our traumas collide. Our politics, our prejudice, our passive-aggressive tendencies, our need for power, but also our capacity for empathy, understanding, sacrifice, forgiveness, wonder, and celebration. Sometimes we have prompts on the table, such as, what's your all-time favorite movie? Or, what's the best thing that happened to you last week? And we do that to help us move past the apparent differences and discover the fullness of, you too? Wow, I didn't know that. And by practicing this holy invitation, we also invite the very real, very welcoming presence of God. So, because it's early, and I feel like maybe we could use a little help waking up. And those, those darn masks are, you know, it's hard to hear each other, but we're going to try. I want to do a quick practice of you two. So I want you to turn to someone around you and tell them, I'm going to give you 60 seconds, a book that you are reading or a show that you are watching that you love. Ready, set, go. You guys do great. Wow. Good job. This reminds me of youth ministry years. Like, kids, youth, come back, come back, come back. I hope you had, I hope you had a you too moment. So this whole experience of of planting a dinner church. See, I thought it was for others, but that's where hospitality surprised me. I have discovered that this deep dive into God's welcome is also a holy invitation for me to look in the mirror and see myself as beloved below the surface level of my ministry life. Now, I know that may sound obvious to you, but The reality is I've spent my life pursuing a spiritual hospitality 
that I have spent all my time giving but not thinking about how I'm supposed to receive it personally. My last 10 years have been the hardest of my life. In a recent counseling session, I was encouraged to create a grief loss graph. Now, I know it's kind of small, but if you'll just look at the left-hand side, the first two-thirds of it is my first 40 years of life, okay? And then, and then the last third is, um, did I say, did I get my fractions messed up there? First two-thirds, one, yeah. Last third is uh, the last 10 years. And I just, there were so many grief losses that I ran out of room. And I was like, wow, it's been a fun decade. And so when I finished it, there were these painful things that I had not really thought about how much they had bunched up in my life. The highlights are two pastoral rejections because I was female, bilateral pulmonary embolisms in my lungs, which is blood clots. You don't want those. Those are not fun. Um, they, it did some damage to, long-term damage to my lungs and my vocal cords. Uh, one month in 2020, I started a church, COVID hit, and my sweet father passed away. And then 12 months after that, I buried a cousin and two friends, and I was in a bad car accident, and the stress from all those losses broke open this, the very shallow, what I thought were shallow fault lines in my family, and we found ourselves facing a deep crevice of sorrow and depression. And for me, the startling reality that no amount of ministry experience or seminary training or leading could avoid this very stuck place that I had come to. Now, I understand many of you may look at that and go, yeah, my last three years, I've got a bunched up set of losses too. That's the, that empathy. We understand because there's a collective loss too that we've all shared. But for me, here's where the journey has gone. In the last year, I have realized that my work to welcome others into a flourishing life with God is also the invitation for me to come to the table when I have more questions than answers, when I can't see past my sadness. The story of Jesus and the woman at the well, for which our little church is named, became my encounter with Jesus. I found myself walking up to the well with all my broken pieces, with failure stories being whispered around me and little rumors, you know, because people like to compete and that little church isn't going to make it in COVID. Um, kind of funny, um, some profanity-laced anger that my behavior management church upbringing suppressed, but that came out. Sometimes it's cathartic. And the reality that I really resented some people. And I felt isolated and defeated. When I looked in the mirror, I did not know how to love, accept, or welcome that person. I'm realizing that just like Jesus chose to go the long way through Samaria, the disparaged and avoided all cost land, that he traveled to get to that well. He also wanted to go the long way with me through this barren landscape that I found myself in. I did not have to figure it all out today. 
questions, lament, and even wondering if what I had believed my whole life was true. It was all allowed. Listen, I'm a pastor. I have always allowed those spaces for other people. I have not allowed that space for myself. I'm realizing that all the parts of my story matter to God, even the not succeeding as a Christian leader, I felt, or failure as a superhero parent, because I thought I was. And not just the performance-worthy moments where people say, that was amazing, that was so cool, because I'm an Atta girl. I love the Atta girls. But also, here's a good one. Being the identity of being a trailblazing woman in ministry in my church tradition. I had to bring that too. But also, Denise, who's late for almost everything, struggles with ADHD. Figured that out when I was 35. That explained a whole lot. 95% joy, 5% really bad temper. And the kicker. The Denise, who seems to do just fine, as long as everything's going okay, or pretty much okay. But 10 years into the wilderness, she was kind of a mess. Her two Enneagram, if you've done the Enneagram, you know, the server, the giver, <laughs> turns into an unhealthy eight, functioning like an emotional bull in a china closet, taking people out with me as I go. My encounter with the Son of God is like that woman walking up to the well, Jesus is tired and resting at the same well that she is tired of traveling to in the middle of the day. And the conversation and debate that follows, he cares about what she thinks. He's kind of amused by her snarky attitude. He lets her know that he knows her story, and it does not scare him or turn him off. Her curiosity, her courage, her honesty and her pain, all of it, all of it matters to him. I'm starting to feel that same welcome. I'm learning to find my place as her in that story. And finally, like her, I'm finding my way back into healthy community because the encounter with Jesus opens up space for vulnerability and for us to be able to ask for help and not always keeping my leadership guard up or needing to be the one who sweeps in, swoops in to, take, to come to the rescue. Last spring, we had a very scary family crisis that was on that, that's on that little graph I showed you. And it rocked my world. And I started thinking, can I actually do this? Can I actually lead anymore? I just don't know if I can. That same week that the crisis hit, I had a scheduled lunch with three of my student alumni from youth ministry years. I still try to be the youth pastor to them, but they are also my friends. Like, I, I deeply love them. They're 10, 12 years younger than me. I couldn't keep it together at lunch that day. I just broke down. I fell apart. I sobbed. I shared my story with them. These women embraced me and took on the role of ministers to me. They allowed me to be afraid and helpless. They were fully present with me in my despair. As the year has gone by, I've recognized how much my running group is spiritual community to me. It's probably the best small group I've ever been in. 
even though there's this broad range of actual lived faith expressions and even non-existent faith expressions in this group. I remember the first time I had dinner with them. My husband had already been running with them, and he was training for his first marathon. And he would come home from the runs and just have all these stories and laughter and just hilarious things. You know, sometimes just I'm like, that's an appropriate comment. I mean, just, you know, they just were real with each other. And he would come home and tell me these stories, and I was a little jealous because I worked in a church, and my world kind of revolved around that. All my friendships were there, and I didn't have that real community that he was experiencing. And so on the night that I went to this first dinner, I walked in, and Robert, who was a friend he had been, a person he had met that he was training for their first marathon together, I walked in the room, and Robert said, There she is! come sit down. And like he pulls out a chair, sit down, Denise, asks me all these questions, wants to know all about me, makes fun of Gary with me. And we just had this wonderful time. But those words, there she is. What a picture of welcome that is. For someone to not yet know me, but to demonstrate an expectancy and a thrill at finally making my acquaintance. feel like God says, there you are. Finally, the real you showing up. I like you. And this year has been dotted with new friendships that demonstrate the fullness of this hospitality that moves, us, moves me past the threshold of leadership to being vulnerable and real. Just last week, a group of us, of these new, deep, love-filled friends, we gathered together to talk about Rachel Held Evans' wholehearted faith. And no one held back where we were on that journey, not even Denise the pastor. My mental image of my family gathering at the dinner table in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, it has a new filter. It's colored a little differently now. Now listen, there are plenty of unresolved tensions at work in my life, in my faith, which I am welcoming because it's about time to be able to ask questions and be honest. But there is one thing I have figured out. I finally see myself as one who needs a place at the table too. I just don't set the table of welcome or provide nourishment to help people grow, I desperately need to pull out a chair, sit down, and join the meal. Thanks.